Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is John Lukovich, sexual self-prez 415-458 trifix. And I'm Karen Ance, self-prez social 3-wing 2-371 trifix. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Blind Spot. I'm starting today with a little bit of sadness because the partnership that John and I have started is going to be shifting as we move into the school year. As you know, we all have many different things that we prioritize and lots of different projects and opportunities going on. John is at a very exciting time in his career and unfortunately is not going to be able to continue with the interview process. So we're going to shift direction a little bit. I'm very happy that John is willing to do these next three episodes where I can interview him about his book, uh, The Instinctual Drives in the Enneagram, and really get a good sense of his experience of the self-preservation, the social, and the sexual instincts. And more of this information can be found in his book, which came out last year and is a wonderful resource. Uh, We're going to be going ahead and interviewing some other teachers who are also working on describing and teaching the instinctual drives. Many of you listening probably know that there are some similarities and differences in how people are interpreting things. And I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk to a wide variety of thought leaders in the Enneagram field and then start doing these interviews. And the interviews are going to be both of individuals and of couples of how we experience our blind spots. John, why don't you like take it away? How do you like to start if somebody asks you, so... John, you know, there are other teachers out there that are talking about the instincts. These instinctual drives have been associated with subtypes. I know they're important, but you seem to really care about these. Why were you motivated to write a book? And how is the take that you are um, working with a little bit different from what we already have out in the Enneagram community? Yeah, so I think most people when they learn about the instincts into into it that they're very important and significant and that's something i've heard over and over again is that like oh there's there's just something naturally intriguing about them and naturally feels like there should be something there but i've found that most of how they've been defined and understood and used has kind of been um not opened up understanding, but has sort of uh, led to or contributed to a way of being like, oh, I'm type X, Y, or Z, and that's me, and that's what it is. And, oh, to work on your weakest instinct or to work on the instincts in general is just a matter of acquiring different behaviors or changing your behaviors. And uh, for myself, uh, who identify as a sexual type, like I immediately resonated, like I'm a sexual type. I immediately saw that in myself, given the kind of emotional charge around sexual attraction and and, and sexuality that was like, I knew that there was something like weird <laughs> in the way that I understood sexuality and, and sexual energy that other people were much more like casual about or un- unaware of or something like this. And I always felt that... The sexual drive, especially in how it was defined and understood within the Enneagram, was somehow not accurate. It was not right. And it was also kind of self-flattering, I felt like, because a lot of times the sexual instinct was described as the intensity instinct or one-on-one or intimacy, which there was always this flair when people spoke about it of somehow being deeper or more interested in real connection or somehow um, something that seemed a little bit flattering. And I thought that uh, intuitively, it just seemed like if you're really on the, really discovering something with the Enneagram, that it's humiliating or humbling. Yeah, I kept kind of like having it in mind. And when I decided like, all right, there's no, I want to write a a book on the Enneagram and spirituality, but let me just do something kind of quick. And uh, like, you know, I know the instincts pretty well. I'll just get that shit out of the way. And I started actually doing research into biology. And this coincided with um, 
like to kind of back up, it coincided with, I had a kind of like a, a altered state of consciousness uh, experience uh, doing MDMA therapy where I really got in visceral touch with like the deep, deep, like fear inside my body. And it was around not being sexually attractive. And after this experience, I was like, that is the most superficial shit I've ever heard of. Like, that's what's motivating me. Like, I just saw the whole pattern. I saw how my whole life had been. I always thought it was a little bit more like romantic than it was, or I, I rationalized it in different ways. And I try to frame it in different ways in myself to make it make more sense in a way that was like less painful to see. But when I started recognizing how, um, not to say that it's all, it's like a, a deeply shallow instinct or something, but when I saw what I deemed at the time, a certain shallowness in myself, I had to like dive into biology and anthropology to understand what was going on inside myself. And I was mm -hmm. already in the Gurdjieff work and applying this, you know, inner work practices and I was doing breath work at the time. And so it was sort of the whole constellation of things was all up, up for me. I always felt that the instincts had been just described in terms of character traits and behaviors. And I felt that, like these were really inadequate for not only identifying what one was accurately or describing them, but also like working with them. It just kept them very conceptual. And I, I, I still find, I run into it all the time where um, people sort of look at the instincts in terms of, I relate to this and I don't relate to that. And it's, a, it's so anyway, it's, it doesn't, um, I, I've, I found that there was, there was a like a lack in how to work with these things that in inevitably seemed extremely f at the forefront of our identity. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That really resonates with me. And, you know, I've been interested in the instincts for the past few years since I discovered this component in my Enneagram studies. And I've just been like, looking for more information on it, because I think as a doctor, I've studied a lot of neuroscience and a lot of human biology. And so I see these things in action and the instincts are, you know, from a biological standpoint, something that I've been studying a lot about, but it was really landing on your book that kind of started clicking things for me, because the way that I want to talk about it is that I actually think the subtype, this is the analogy I have, if we're talking about a certain subtype, a certain stack with a certain Enneagram type, for me with my doctor mind, this is the disease that somebody has, Right. okay? So I wanna talk about it like if I'm a doctor and I discover that you have a lung cancer, okay? Then, you know, that's like the disease, that's the presentation of it. So I can just go in and like cut out the tumor but yet I'm not understanding everything that led to that tumor occurring in the first place. There's all of these underlying energies. So I think that many people in the Enneagram community, I'm always surprised when I meet somebody who knows the Enneagram. And then I'm like, oh, what do you know about the instincts? Do you know what your stack is? And more often than not, they don't. So the instincts have been left out of so many Enneagram teachings. And I'm really happy to see that some of the teachers are actually starting with instinctual teachings and then moving to teachings on type. I'm not sure what the right approach for introducing students to this material is, but I think it's so important to understand that the instinctual drives are what is underneath the entire personality structure. And then the personality structure is what we use to meet the instinctual needs. So exactly. I'm going to pause a moment, but then I want to come back and just talk about my own discovery of being self-preservation dominant, because it's a little bit like your story of sexual dominant. I'm I'm just curious, is that does that resonate with you as this sort of being a disease state and we really have to oh, move upstream? I think that's a beautiful way to put it because like as I was just speaking to, I would I would I'd see people using type instincts combination there, you know, I'm a sexual four, I'm a social nine, whatever is just a label and is a little like more like uh i don't know some like just like a little like a quiz result or something like that and rather than seeing it for uh what this the suffering it represents and the struggle and the weaknesses and the the liabilities and so yeah it's like you know like i said before that uh, you know as a sexual type and and seeing people identify as a sexual whether accurately or inaccurately i felt like it was kind of presented in a flattering way and from my experience, like I represent, I recognize like this, it is not that, you know, <laughs> and it's like, 
Uh, and I think if you're if you're sexual type and you're not humiliated by this sense of what like the implications of what that means, then it's probably not your type. And so I was like, there's what's the work here? What indicates what the work is? And so I wanted to take it, yeah, from uh, I wanted to take it from being something that was sort of just like a flourish on you know of self fascination into into naming it as a disease. So I think that was great. Yeah, and you know we want to make sure that we're using the enneagram not to name. I mean, I think the enneagram is wonderful because we can use these descriptive terms to help convey what we're talking about. But remembering that this is just a map and not the territory. And as we dive into it, being sexual dominant could manifest in such a wide variety of ways, depending upon the structure and like what you fixate on. Just like having it in the blind spot can manifest as um, a wide variety of different ways. So just because you're dominant doesn't mean you're good at it. Let's say that. Absolutely. And just because you're blind in it doesn't mean you don't have those characteristics. It's almost like it's going to leak Absolutely. out in some way that isn't serving your essence because it's going to end up being a block. I think, I mean, that's such a good point. And something I run into constantly is people trying to understand the instincts. They start measuring in terms of what they think they're good at or what they think they're bad at. And this is stacking or something like that. It's so much more complex. Yeah. And it's so, it's so, it's so much more than that. And I think that like, you know, like I like, that's a whole thing, but yeah. That's well, and I such love a- that we're coming to this conversation and this work together because I also had the experience of you know, I think I'm self-preservation dominant, but so many things that are being said about self-preservation dominant, I don't actually connect with or relate to. Like, for example, they say that self-preservation dominant people are calmer and more self-contained. Well, anybody that knows me would not describe me that way. I mean, um, I think that, you know, that comes maybe from the self-preservation six description or what we've been told about self-preservation twos or, you know, things that where people are um, trying to stay safe and the strategy that they're using is to become smaller. But I know that for me, when my self-preservation instinct is activated, having a 371 fix with no withdrawn energies whatsoever, when self-preservation gets activated, there's nothing calm or contained. Like I can easily go offline. And when I am wrapped up in my self-preservation dominant instinct, I am not guarded. And, you know, they say that self-preservation dominant people may be non-invasive. Well, I have a two wing. I know how to be invasive. You know, (laughs) they say they're risk avoidant. I've taken some of the biggest risks in my life when my self-preservation instinct gets activated and I don't keep a level head. So, you know, I think that this whole perception of self-preservation dominant being quieter, more contained, I can see how that will manifest in the self-preservation eight. But the reason is because when the eight gets activated, they go to five and they withdraw and they're calculating. You know, I used to think I was an eight because when my self-preservation gets accessed, I can become very aggressive. And that's not actually, I don't look like an eight though. I look like a disintegrated heart center person that's like spewing emotion at you. So I just really struggled with these definitions of self-preservation dominant, but what brought me to it, and I'm really glad that we're going to talk about substances in this podcast too, because being a physician that prescribes drugs and being interested in psychedelic therapy, and I know some of your experiences have given you some insight into this world as well. Um, I think that we're going to talk on this podcast about things people are embarrassed about. I think we're going to talk about sex and we're going to talk about intimacy and we're going to talk about um, substances and, you know, experiences people are having. And while you and I are evidently whichever instinctual drive is leading us to just talk about this openly with our identities, the people we're going to be interviewing, we're specifically not going to use their names. We're not going to identify them except in special cases when they are a figure that people may already know and they're comfortable with that because we really want to go into these spaces that people aren't always comfortable with. So my experience actually came with the work of um, Sarah Payton's Resonant Healing and Yak Pangsep, who actually activated these emotional circuits in animals and then treated them with different substances because he was studying addiction. And when I've been really dysregulated and not in a great space, I know that I've found some ease with like benzodiazepines, you know, a little Xanax or a Klonopin or something like that. And when I was learning this work, 
I always thought that it was my heart-centered needs not being met, which were sort of like abandonment, aloneness, things like this. But those actually are soothed with narcotics. And when I've had narcotics post-surgically, I haven't really been able to understand why anybody would get addicted to these substances. They just like don't do it for me. Mm -hmm. And yet when I know I'm dysregulated and I take a Xanax, I'm like, oh yeah, I could see why people want to keep taking this. Like that really offers relief. And that's actually directly related to the fear circuit, not panic grief. So I was like, hmm, fear, isn't that point six? And I'm identifying as a three. But when I've really been sitting with it and exploring it, it's actually when self-preservation is threatened. Mm -hmm. Because when the mm -hmm. self-preservation, like that's like, I need to be alive. I need to be here. The idea that something that equal, you know, equal equals self-preservation is threatened, I go into a fear response, even though I'm not a six, right. which is why this actually helped me to understand my instinctual stack by just noticing my own experience with different substances. So I wanted to throw that into the mix. I mean, beautiful, like, you know, that gets into, okay, if fear itself is not just six, what is six? You know, it starts to so many things that have kind of been lumped together out of, you know, just as, in the process of trying to unpack the Enneagram, things that kind of shuffled and it's like a work in progress. But yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, what if like, like, what does that mean about? And I don't, you know, I don't have an answer right now, but it's like, what does that mean about fear? What does that mean about the head center? What does that mean about six? What is that? All, you know, all these things kind of start to become clear and become more in, in focus when there's uh like the, when you have the right tools, right definitions, right ideas, and right right d ways that these not concepts but these categories direct our attention and how they can be used. So yeah. yeah, exactly. And like as an internal medicine doctor, I think I'm so excited about this because everything I've done all day and I've been trained to do is differential diagnosis. It's like these are the symptoms. So now how can we come up with the diagnosis? Because once we have an accurate diagnosis, we can have a treatment plan. So when I think of personal growth, it's so similar. Like if we're confused by what we're even talking about, right. we're going to be mislabeling things. Right. And then we might not actually be able to get into the blind spot and start doing things that are actually helpful. Exactly. I mean, that that's the same approach, but from a philosophy background for me. Mm-hmm. Defining mm -hmm. our terms and like, what is this actually, what are the implications of these terms and how they all working together? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it's um, because I'm self-preservation dominant, but like when I started learning that it's all about coming back into the body, that's actually super powerful for me because um, I don't know, and I'm curious if you think self-preservation dominant people, when they actually become more present, I feel like I have such an awareness inside my body, it's just that it's almost so intense that it can dysregulate me. So once I learned <laughs> yes. more grounding techniques, my body has actually become a superpower. So I'm like really celebrating it in a way that my body used to be a scary place. When I was mm. a kid, I would have all these sensations and my mind convinced me that this was every disease process under the sun, which is part wow. of why I became a doctor because I wanted to understand it. I was using a head-centered approach to deal with the self-preservation fear that was rising up. And yeah, I mean, there was some desensitization that happened. You know, I got more used to being around illness and realized that a lot of what I worried about was neurotic. Um, but really, it was coming into the heart center and coming into the body that has now taken this self-preservation instinct, which in me feels really strong, but I can, in moments of integration actually connect with this wisdom of the body. And I'm just curious how that lands with you. And if you think that that resonates with what you know about self-preservation instinct. Absolutely. I mean, that's beautifully put. And like, I mean, you know, you're, you're calling to mind uh, for me, my self-preservation six sister, who's kind of got that hypochondriac, like everything is a disease quality. And, you know, combining that with the aware, like the just incredible attentiveness and awareness of six, it's just like, you know, chaos, but it's like, you're exactly right. There's, I, I, yeah, the way you put it in terms of like actually so aware of the body that's dysregulating, that's great because that's exactly it. There's like self-preservation, sexual and social drives are all located in the body, but where our attention in the body is trained to focus on specific sensations and impressions at the expense of others 
and to attribute certain kinds of meaning to certain impressions and sensations. And so it's like, it's learning to come into the body as it actually is instead of how we've been unconsciously trained to relate to it and relate to our embodied experience. So yeah. I, yeah, and I this is why we talk about, you know, sensing, looking, and listening, and this taking in of conscious impressions. And what I've come to understand about that is it's not the dysregulated information that's coming from the body or the emotional center that then leads to the unhelpful thoughts. It's like, can I settle that all down? Can I get my nervous system to a place where there's heightened sensitivity that I can actually trust where I'm seeing what's actually in front of my eyeballs. I'm hearing what's actually coming into the ears without all the story around it. Exactly. Cool. I mean, something, something I want to, we'll get into down the road, I think is like how these like little impressions like hunger or something like, or loneliness can like get all this emotional baggage attached to it that we don't even see that it's like, it's like a package that you don't even know you're getting. Right. And how that leads to all these chains of associations and reactions and behaviors and beliefs and uh, the whole cascade of things. Yeah. So exactly like that. How do the, the high sensitivity to impressions I can actually trust versus like what's a impression that I'm loading up with baggage. A hundred percent. Like I'm thinking of my Buddhist psychology here and how he talks about the second arrow. Like there are painful things that are going to happen all the time. That's the first arrow. But then the story and everything else we build upon it is that second arrow. And that's where suffering is. You know, we're not trying to avoid pain, but we're trying to reduce suffering, which is what we're manufacturing on top of what can already be an unpleasant existence. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, yeah, I think it's important to just start off with when we just look at like a list of needs of the different the the different instincts that we might not be able to identify our blind spot because it's really a lot more about saying where is this instinctual energy trying to get us and then these needs you know i come from a nonviolent communication world where we're very careful about this word need and this word feeling and we want to differentiate between strategies and needs so sometimes when i look at the need needs of each instinct, I think those are actual strategies. Like if I'm self-preservation dominant, you know, I care about food and money and, you know, temperature and all of these things because they're strategies to meet the self-preservation longing, but they're not actually what's going to get me the essence quality of self-preservation. Do you want to speak on that a little? Can you clarify what you mean by like the essence quality of self-preservation? Because yeah. like for, I'm mixing you know, from my that term, word not... a little bit um, because I know that essence has some very specific meanings, and I'm I think I'm throwing that around in a messy way. So thanks for naming that. What I want to make sure we don't throw away in a messy way are needs versus strategies. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for example, as a self-preservation dominant person, if I have a certain amount of financial security it feels like it's meeting a self-preservation need. Mm -hmm. But the self-preservation need is actually safety. Like it's it's safety and it's predictability and it's the ability to like um, sustenance and reliability. It's like, can I trust it? And having money is a strategy that I use to achieve those needs. Does that more clear? Beautiful, yeah, you know, exactly, exactly. I mean, because if you're not able to address the root feeling of safety, the need for safety, you're going to do all these other strategies that through our chain of associations have come to be associated with how to achieve safety. But you can actually never arrive at safety. Like it's, you know, billionaires who just can never have enough money as an example. It's yes. there's there's this way that we've linked up a strategy that this is how need X, Y, or Z is addressed. Yes. It's, I mean, beautifully said. Yeah, exactly. And so I wanted to bring that up because when I've heard you talk about this before, and I love that we come from different backgrounds because I think one of the things we care about is really clarifying the language. So if I say something like essence, I don't even know if I can really, would you really define that? Because I just screwed it up. So how about you define what we're talking about in the Enneagram community or what you're talking about? Because I think I'm still finding my way to this word. Yeah, I mean, essence part of what's funny about essence is it doesn't have like, you can't quite nail it. It's not like a concept to like really 
put your put your hands around because it's not a functional thing and that's a this being versus functioning is a big distinction in the in inner work but um so yeah, no like wonder essence, i struggle with it as a point three <laughs> well yeah essence is um you know when we say that we are present the thing that is present is essence okay and so it is not the pattern it's not the automatic structures and associations it's the kind of the pilot or it's the person that can be home. So when I say an essence quality, though, like in the Enneagram, like isn't the essence of point three, you know, authenticity? Did I get that right? Or is that that's, the holy idea? That's the virtue. The and... virtue. And so it's when you, okay, so essence is not the virtues and it's not the holy ideas. Correct. Okay, thank you. So like the way I... So essence has qualities, right? It's like mm -hmm. there are certain ways that it feels or we experience it when we're present, right? There, okay. There's something that has texture that it's like our consciousness has a kind of essence is the potential for consciousness. Is this? It can be developed to being sensitivity and consciousness, but it's not always that for most people. It needs yeah. work. It needs to be like sculpted. But for three, I think of it as essential value. And it's that quality of that. No matter who we are, when we're present, really yes, present, there's generally you. speaking an intrinsic sense of my own value and your value. There's just yes. a sense of preciousness in uh, Kabbalah. It's like glory. You know, it's just, just like there's a it's it's just inherent sense of value. And so, yeah. part of the the instinct confusion is, and especially as a three, but we all have our version of this, is I have to do something to yeah. get that value. Right. Absolutely. I say every morning I wake up and, you know, when I go to bed at the end of the day, um, if I feel like I checked things off of a list that I accomplished, that's how my ego, um, you know, comes by value. Exactly. And if I can actually rest into a day of just being and notice the ego saying, you did nothing today, you should, you know, feel bad about that. This is why I love my point nine friends, because they're like, no, it's actually okay to spend a day <laughs> being. And I'm like, wow, what a radical concept. And wow, like you still like me and I didn't actually do anything. Yeah. It can be a little bit of a mind blown thing. Yeah. Totally. When I love pretending to be an Enneagram teacher and then completely confusing virtues, essence, qualities. And I just want to like bring humility in and say that this stuff is complicated. Like we're going to take people through so many different terrains and I just love stumbling into my own confusion because through that is where clarity comes. So totally. I want to just say, thanks. And I want to say like, you know, don't feel any kind of like inner judgment or cringe for having a mix up. Cause like, you know, what I find is like, even like teachers who, um, know their shit often they might know the terms or how the, the structure is or lines up, but there's like, I mean, everybody's got confusion on all different levels, you yeah. know? And so virtue and essence, like, yeah, very easy to confuse and they're related. You know, it's not, it's not a, it's a thing. So it's like, everybody's well, just, I'm confusing it. I know other people are too. Like I always, you know, we're all confused about different things. And I love that this is, um, wow, look at this social instinct, John, we're learning together and we're <laughs> bouncing off each other for the sake of more clarity. So that's really totally. fun. So, okay, I think we talked about um, these three instincts. Would you, I threw out that word approaches. Does it feel like that's the next best place to go? Or is there anything else you want to say about the instincts before we start flushing out your model more? Yeah, well, I, I feel like, let's see, I, I'm <laughs> trying to go back, but I, I think that, yeah, that what I wanted to kind of touch on, and I don't know if, you know, you can redirect me if we've already kind of covered this, but um one of the things that I think is really important to bring out and understand when approaching at least my take on the instincts is that I thought it was really necessary to define instinct, first of all, in a way that coincided with understandings of human motivation and behavior that were outside of the Enneagram. I love that. Maybe we'll do that today because I think the approaches is going to open up a huge topic that's probably best for the next episode. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. since we've got about 20 minutes left here, I think that diving into what I'm hearing is like talking about these individual instincts and clarifying what these instincts are. Is that where you'd like to go right now? Yeah, well, just to say like, there's a difference between 
what self-preservation is and then what a self-preservation type is. Okay. Like, yeah, and let's I think talk about that. That. Di- that distinction is lost often because, um, you know, you start talking about the self-pres drive. And I mean, I got into discussion with somebody last night who uh, identifies as a sexual type. In my view, they're clearly sexual blind and they were going through, oh, I, I relate to this and these are needs, but it's like, Give us the example. I want to hear this story because I think it's going to be so helpful because, yeah, I mean, I think most people I know are sexual blind now that I'm understanding it in a new way. Yeah. So. And I live in the suburbs. I think that depends on the circles you run in. And so I just want to say, like, I, you know, live in the suburbs of Chicago, you know, very family oriented. Um, It feels I think a lot of, you know, everybody drives a minivan. Everybody lives in the same kind of house. Um, it, I just think if you were sexual dominant out here, you'd really struggle. Whereas, you know, you live in New York City, right? And there's, I think, a lot more places for self-expression in major metropolitan areas mm-hmm. than in another vanilla suburb. That's just my impression. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're going to you're gonna live in a place that where you can prioritize your dominant instinctual needs, you know, and, and, and it varies by culture and class and all this kind of different stuff. But yeah, so I, I can't remember how this came up exactly, but somebody was asking me to compare how this kind of same question of how I look at the instincts versus how other teachers may look at the instincts. I referred them to an article on my website. That's like a very basic article just about the instincts, about the needs and like getting that, uh, they started talking about passion and they said, Oh, I'm a sexual type. I'm very passionate about connection. And I was like, well, actually, uh, passionate about connection, connection, connection is social connection is not sexual. They were, you know, it was getting this whole thing of like, oh, well, I'm passionate about connection, but I don't care about hierarchies. I don't care about organizations, though I used to be the president of a company, uh, you know, and, and, and then talking about like, you know, I was like, well, you know, the sexual instinct is concerned about a sexual display and its sexual attractiveness. It is the drive to put oneself ahead of sexual competition. And they're like, does it have to be about competition? I don't understand display. And then I was accused also of, which is very common, that I'm not considering age which I've known sexual types that are in their seventies, you know, so not saying I'm getting it all right, but I think that's a thing we could talk about in the future. When I want to name that word connection. So when I hear the word connection, like that sounds nice, that sounds warm and that sounds fuzzy. The sexual instinct is not nice. Like the sexual instinct sees what it wants. It goes after it. There will be fallout. It doesn't really care. Like in the wild, when we see animals acting out their sexual instinct, they'll literally kill the other male to get to the female. It's aggressive. It's not a nice energy. So I think if you are identifying with your desire for connection as being something nice, you might not be sexual dominant. Exactly. It's, it's, it, I mean, all the instincts have this, but sexual is narcissistic and it's part of the intelligence that instinct to be narcissistic because if you're going to get the mate you want get the genetic material or whatever it is whatever the end is from from the point of view of nature you need to put yourself out there and fight and compete and to display and to accentuate and to show off and social's got its own version of that and self-prize has its own version of that but yeah connection is connection even if it's intense connection even if it's a very juicy alive connection it's it's not sexual. And generally speaking, one of the big distinctions that, I mean, we can sort of circle back to like the definitions of the instincts before we go into all this, but just say like the sexual instinct wants to attract or it wants to really repel people because it's a sorting mechanism. And it's about penetrating boundaries and getting like penetrating boundaries and throwing off boundaries. Whereas connection social is really about seeing where somebody's boundaries are. And maybe they're very open. Maybe they're very rigid. Maybe the, the, the nature of the connection, it has, has a certain need to be appropriate, like whether it's between people of different ages, very different ages. There's all these kind of social structures that have to be obeyed and considered that the sexual instinct is not concerned about. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Like when I'm operating in my office with patients or my employees, like I'm very, very sensitive to like, where is the boundary and what is this person, what's going to make them comfortable? What's going to develop that 
bond between us that's social. Whereas like when I'm on Bumble and engaging with somebody, like I will sometimes just throw out shit that's like blatantly honest because it's my display (laughs) and like either somebody like leans in and we have a really interesting conversation and maybe a connection or they um they drop the match you know and i'm just like (laughs) oh okay there was rappel you know so it's kind of fun to just look at the different ways you show up and honestly like as a point three i think that a lot of times threes know how to play the game like we can get a lot of matches on bumble but in terms of like actually getting the connection that you want um that can be a lot harder as an attachment type or you know as somebody who's used to kind of doing that outer display thing and i wanted to also mention this thing about competition because like threes are often described as competitive Mm -hmm. And the sexual instinct is competitive. So this was another thing that was confusing for me. Um, I don't actually view myself as competitive, but everybody else does. Um, But I think it's because I, in my ego fixation, want to achieve a certain level of success or personal like accomplishment. And there's also something about the self-pres, for example, like I love to feel in my body that I was able to do a certain hike or, you know, something that can seem competitive, but it's actually responding more to an internal drive. I don't think it's quite that sexual competition vibe, which, um, I'm now becoming more familiar with, but I do think has been blind is what I'm seeing now. So that's another way I was confused because competition can show up in lots of different ways and it's not sexual instinct. Well, exactly. And like, you know, what we touched on earlier about six and fear is like, what is six? What is self-pres fear? All these kind of these things that these terms, like it's a problem of, of language is that there's so many different ways we can use one word to, to describe many different events and phenomenon. And so it's like one of the tempting things to go, oh, threes are competitive and just kind of put that in the three category and write that off. And then, oh, sexual is competitive. And, and not to see that, what does that mean in context? Like what does sexual competition actually mean? And how is uh, sexual competition in a sense waged? And is sexual competition primarily directed toward the object of desire? Is it directed against the uh, uh, the rival? Does there always have to be a rival? And what is it like? What does that mean for one's identity? And another, you know, in in the same constellation of uh, like like issues that people or objections or what questions people have immediately to this kind of different view of the of the the drives is oh, are sexual types just constantly relating to people in a sexual way? You know, absolutely not. So how do all these things cooperate and work together? How do we like, yeah, take a word like competition. Another word is sensitivity. Another word is intensity. These are all words that, like we have associations with that often prevent us from deeply learning or seeing what we want to see because we associate them with one thing or another. I love that. All right. So which one do you want to talk about now? Did you just, you just clarified sexual for us a little bit. And I feel like we've talked about self-pres. I don't think we've given enough airtime to social. And that's probably because neither one of us care about it as much. You're <laughs> blind and it's middle for me, but so we should probably do social. Well, I think, I think what we can do to like, I, I definitely agree that we should talk more about it. And I think that what I'll say also is that there's, there's two points I want to get at is like, why do we study the Enneagram or why do we see the instincts in terms of Enneagram? And then how am I actually defining instincts and like, okay. like what to look for rather than just clusters of behaviors or okay, traits? Great. Or something. Thanks. So the first thing is why associate instinct with the Enneagram? Because it can be its own system independent of the Enneagram. You can you classification other apart from the Enneagram. You know, why not bring in something like Myers-Briggs, like, oh, I'm an INFJ for. And you can do that, but it's like, what is the special relationship between instinct and the Enneagram? The special relationship is that we get identified, psychologically identified with the agenda, the sensations, the the goals, the needs of a specific instinctual drive that has priority over the other two. And that our instinctual stacking is in a sense, a, a map of our identifications and priorities of specific needs. And that gets into the second point, which is that instead of seeing instinct as just like a modifier of, or more specific uh, flavor of a certain type or a cluster of behaviors or something like this, I see instinct as a 
specifically motivational drive to meet specific biological needs. Yeah. That's really important because it's providing the motivation that is getting the whole personality mechanism going and going and re-engaged and re-engaged. Yes. And it's to get specific needs met, meaning they're not just like feelings or tendencies or values or priorities. They're yes. things that we're actually need, feel like we need for not just our physical well-being, but our actual sense of identity and self and self-worth. Yeah. Well, and I have a nuance here that is something that has confused me a lot. So when we're talking about how we feel about our families, mm -hmm. this often gets put into the category of social. So if mm -hmm. you're like very family oriented, I've heard that that's a manifestation of the social instinct. And that never really landed with me either, because it feels more intense for me than the nicey-nice of social. Mm -hmm. And what I've come to discover is that I actually think that family is a strategy that I use to meet my self-preservation need of safety. Because I actually don't go out into the world to have lots of friend groups or join the PTA or, you know, join the moms that are doing this, that or the other or a book group. You know, that stuff doesn't actually interest me, but I'm very intense about my family and I protect my family and I have an expectation that they'll protect me. So it almost feels like family is a strategy for meeting my self-preservation dominance. How does that mm -hmm. land with you? I mean, that sounds exactly self-pres social stacking. That sounds okay. exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, a very good example. Okay, thanks. Because um, it took me a while to work that out because I'm like, yeah. well, maybe I'm social dominant. I, you know, have four kids. I, you know, tell when I have been in relationship, I tell people like my family comes first and then it's my work and then it's you. <laughs> so that's <laughs> why I'm not in a relationship right now. But, you know, it's... um the, so that would sound like it would be social self-pres, but you have to look at the underlying reason, like what is family actually feeling like in my body? It feels like without right. family, I don't feel safe. Because right. I think especially as a woman, I'm curious about that too. Because, you know, men are typically stronger, have had more power than women across the generations. So women have found safety from men and from mm -hmm. the family mm -hmm. and from the the collective small tribe. So I also feel like that plays into it, that as women, we meet our needs for safety through providing for the family because it's what we our currency has been. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, getting into the pre-agrarian social organization of human beings is super interesting. And, you know, uh, in the same, in line with this theme, one of the big, issues that's infused in most people's understanding of the instincts is just bringing in assumptions from our culture about what's quote unquote natural or how pre prehistoric humans organize their personalities and their ways of being and the social order. Uh, people just say like a common example, and to, again, to go back to this sexual instinct is people will say, Oh, sexual instinct is a monogamy instinct because we needed to form pair bonds to survive in prehistory. Pre and that's just actually just made up. Like there's no evidence for that. There's no sense that that's how he, humans sought safety in a general sense. That's, you know, maybe in a- And monogamy seems like a individual. social contract. I'm sorry? Monogamy kind of seems like a social contract. It's a social contract. And specifically, I mean, the, the whole origins of monogamy are interesting, but one of the leading ideas of, of monogamy comes from needing paternal certainty Mm -hmm. uh, so that when people started to own property, specifically farms, knowing how inheritance was managed and knowing that you were passing your inheritance to your own biology, your own progeny, that became very important in controlling women's sexuality for that reason, because you can, you can really not know who your, who your, who's your baby, you know, who's, whose baby's yours as a man or whatever. Yep. That all became, that's a whole thing. So se sex at dawn is, you know, such a great, book. great book for yeah. that. Yeah. So I keep taking you on tangents. Bring it back, John. What do you want to talk about now? So, you know, we only have a bit of time left, but one of the things that became important for me in understanding the instinctual drives was, all right, they're motivational drives to meet specific needs. So what are those needs? They're a little bit like there's still more work that needs to be done to really narrow them in. But roughly, I came upon nine basic instinctual needs, and I was not trying to go for nine. We not call uh, them needs, though, because I think they're strategies. 
I mean, maybe so. I've been I calling mean, needs them needs. Just to, I know you have been. And this is just, I, I don't know. I just want to give you pushback on that word. I know it's in your book and I know that you talk about it. But when I say, okay, so let's just define needs because help me get to a place where I'm cool with this terminology. Because when you define them, they sound like strategies to me. Like the need is, is the need for, like the needs are safety, connection, intimacy, transcendence, like these are needs that I can identify with. But when I hear you talk about the needs, they sometimes fall more into the category of strategies. What comes up well, for you when I frame so it that way? I think, so the way I kind of posit it is that each instinctual drive has a kind of a basic need that the other two needs derive from. Okay. Can you and tell so, us what they are? What are the basic needs? So for self-preservation, like the basic need is the need for uh, uh, physical well-being. Yes. And that can be interpreted in a lot of ways depending on the individual person. Okay. What feels to me like well-being? Got it. And so the second need I have that I see is like a uh, subset or a variation or an articulation from that that overarching need for physical well-being. The second need, I call it... Um, what do I call sustainable self-regulation? Yeah, sustainable self-regulation has it's a need for autonomy. It's a need for being able to um, have skills and the capacity to acquire skills to for one's own sa safety and and well-being. I heard you say to deal with the shit life presents you. I like that definition. Exactly. Yeah, to have a to have capacity. Yeah. And so you know that might not be. I th so, you know, again, this would be an interesting thing to get in more detail into, but it's like, you know, there might, there's a need for self-esteem there, right? Okay. There's a need to feel equipped for life's challenges. So it's like, where is the well, is difference? Is it self-esteem? Is it self-regulation? I just like, when I think Both. of my self-esteem, that's like, how good are you making me feel about myself right now? When I think of self-regulation, it's like, how okay am I on the inside, whether you're thinking good things or bad things? That's how it comes up for me. Well, I mean, in, like, like, let's say uh, you were in some kind of situation where like, let's say you were like in a small plane, that, like crashed in the jungle. Okay. And you're the only survivor and it's like, I have to figure out how to survive. Yes. If you don't feel like equipped to just take care of yourself in some basic way, like, or that yeah. you can figure it out, like you could just go into total shock, total collapse, okay. total Got it. inability to, so like, I think we all like, you know, we, we face different challenges. It's not only that we need to like part of the self-regulation you're speaking to is having a need to say like, I'm going to have the basic trust and sense of okayness yes. that I can approach this. I can Makes figure sense. this out. And I, so it. there's, there's an element of self-esteem or, you know, a capacity in there. Too. You also just lit up why I'm so anxious that like my three teenage boys have no practical life skills. I'm like, what handyman can I like farm them out to? What person I'm sending my 14 year old on an outdoor action trip because as self-preservation dominant, I have this like recurrent thought, like what if I was in a plane crash in the middle of an island? I have no practical skills, like practical right. skills inside feel really important. Yeah. Right, right. That sense of being equipped. So it's not just like, oh, I want to feel okay, but it's like there's this other dimension to it where it's preparing yes. or being being a fully realized it's a it's a part of individuation as well. And it's a part of you said you mentioned the word transcendence. And I don't know how you're using that, but I would think the way it lands to me is like a sense of an individualized, articulated sense of self. And I think that that's a component piece of it. Transcendence goes under sexual in my mind. So I, if I was referencing that under self-preservation, that was a mistake. I was just kind of no, naming you, all of them. You just named one. And I thought, yeah. all right, well, there's a self-pres sense of like, like maybe not transcendence, but individuation that's mm. achieved through self-preservation. Um, okay. I don't experience transcendence that way. For me, transcendence lives in what I'm discovering sure. around sexual instinct. But um, maybe there are self-pres that experience transcendence through self-pres activities. One of the reasons I also wasn't sure I was self-pres is that I'm one of the least prepared people you'd ever meet. Yeah. But my strategy for that is met through social because I have a mom that takes care of all that stuff at my house. I have an office manager that takes care of all that stuff in my office. And I have friends that when I go to the amusement park, literally pack everything with them so that I can take nothing. So right. I actually meet that need for, I know that it's important, 
but I don't do it because I don't like it. I'd rather I mean, just show up and be a doctor and make money and pay people to do those things. And that you're aware of those things, right? It's like, yeah. that's what, that's the thing people get confused about. Like, oh, I don't bring snacks with me. Right. But some self-prized person will probably like, oh, I don't want to be burdened by anything. I want to be able to like, if I'm at a park to do whatever I want at the park, like that's totally, that's also self-priced. Well, and this is why I'm an obesity medicine doctor that travels with protein bars everywhere I go so that I make sure I never have to go more than two to three hours without a protein bar. feels very important. And when I go on retreats and I'm not in control of my eating schedule, it's the only time I overeat because all of a sudden I have this instinctual mm. drive that like, they're not going to feed me again until right. lunch. What if I get hungry between breakfast and lunch? You know, it's really interesting how that emerges as soon as I can't control my feeding schedule. But what you what you nailed is the difference between, oh, a self-preservation type does X, Y, and Z, and this is how they all are. They all have protein bars on them all the time. And it's like, sometimes, sometimes you go to a park and you don't want like your extra gear and you want to be unburdened, but you yes. have a strategy for how to meet whatever co might come your way. Whereas like, I might, like I am self-presidential. I might think about like, oh, I'm going to eat, but I don't, I don't give much attention at all. You know, yeah. I kind of just like show up and I can figure stuff out on the fly. Right. Anyway, but yeah, to like, to, to run through these again, like, yeah. uh, so we have physical well-being, sustainable self-regulation, and then what I call resources and foundations, which is just to like, you know, it's, and it's, again, it's like a variation on what just came before is to just have the resources I will need in case yeah. certain needs arise or certain. Yeah. Like it's, it's, Even like if a, that comes in the form of friends whatever might arise. Yeah. Like I have, I have things that I can prepared for. And not only that, like it's, it's fine, especially that our self-present instinct, part of the emotional component, you could say, is that the resources we have provide foundations that are kind of the cornerstones of how we live. So like mm -hmm. you mentioned living in the suburbs and you have like your practice, it's like your home is a foundation around which your life is organized yes. and your office and your practice is also a different kind of foundation. It's foundation yes. for your certain sort of identity. And this stuff has got a lot of emotional energy for self-preservation types, yeah. whereas it's, it's, it's relevant for everybody, but somebody who's weak in self-pres, that stuff might be ha more happenstance or accidental, or yeah. it's not given, it's like, it's kind of abstract. It's not as... 100%. Well, and I want to name how relationships are even a foundation for me. Right. So like, I've been a serial monogamist. I've had three significant relationships. And when I'm not in one, it's like my sense of foundation is off. It's not that... Um, sexual instinct, like one-to-one, -one, it's like, I really would love to be in partnership with somebody because it's a part of the foundation. And, you know, touching into those other things are things I have to be more conscious of. Whereas in my mind, it's like, well, shouldn't everybody have a primary partner because it's part of what creates the foundation, you know, it, right. it, like who's going to take care of you when you get sick? You know, these kinds of thoughts come <laughs> to my mind. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, uh, you know, those are like the self-preservation needs. And do you yeah. want to go over the sexual let's do the and other social two. Yeah, let's do that. And that'll be what we do today. Okay. Um, so for sexual, which, you know, I define the sexual instinct as the, uh, the drive to put oneself ahead of sexual competition to attract and to be attractive and sexual needs. So the primary need of which all others, the other two come from is sex. And it's the need to elicit the sexual choice of potential mates and the need for sexual contact and release. So important distinction is that sexual drive is not the sex drive, meaning sexual drive is not the appetite or hunger for, be, for sex. It's not being horny. Right. It's the drive, just like self-preservation is not the appetite of hunger. It's mm -hmm. the drive to ensure that I have the resources and food available or the means to acquire food if the appetite of hunger arises. Yes. And so it's not the same thing as the appetite. And so somebody who is blind and sexual can have a very strong sexual appetite mm -hmm. but somebody who is sexual dominant has in their at their identity core their identity structure the need to elicit a strong sexual choice mm -hmm. like that's like who they take themselves to be is a machine that can get that from somebody they're attracted to yeah. and who they're attracted to and and all that kind of stuff has a lot of emotional energy because of that okay so the second need is the need for chemistry and I, I think of the chemistry as uh, the need to seek and find complementary energies. It's how we feel chosen. It's that like it's an innate sense in the body that there's a creative potential here. 
and it's um, how we sense into something enlivening. Like it, it, it's, it's felt in the body is this sense of charge and the sense of wanting to maybe dissolve or mix. And it's, I like that it's got this, we, we use the term chemistry, like chemical, like a chemical reaction. That's going to be either a repulsive chemical reaction or really binding strong chemical reaction, but it's, it's a factor that, you know, it has to do with the level of charge of a certain kind of attraction. And, and it so, has to do with that really feeling chosen piece, which when I was going in my NVC lens, it seemed like for people who are sexual dominant, that need to matter, that need to be appreciated, that need to be beautiful and like have beauty in your life. Those things all seemed even more relevant. Is that landing with you? You know, a lot of that sounds kind of social to me. And okay. for me, but don't you want to matter to your one to one? Like you want to be the person. Like it's, it feels like there's a very, um, like I want them to appreciate me and only me. I want them to see my beauty and I need to matter more than anyone else. But the way that I would like frame that mattering and that appreciation is like a chemical addiction. Like, yeah, I want you to be addicted to me and my flavor. Yes. And like, like I'm a drug, like, it's not even about like, oh, I like you a lot or you're a great person. It's like, I need you to be addicted to the chemicals and hormones in my body. I need you to be like, this is something that you would not give up, even if you knew it was the right thing to give me up. You know, it's that level of being chosen. 100% resonates. Yep. So I'm curious when we start interviewing people, I want to hear people's experience of that. Yeah. And And the next one, loss of self, right? Sorry? The next one's loss of self, right? The next is loss in self, which is it's so there's a couple of facets to this. And it's I think of it as the need to be to get beyond our habitual sense of self to get outside of our usual sense of ego boundaries. And it's a kind of mixing up our our sense of ourselves. And it's a it's a kind of self renewal. And so um, it's kind of interesting because on the level of the orgasm, this is a part of actually the function of the orgasm, which is not just for pleasure. It's not just for conception or whatever. It, it's, it regulates us hormonally. It creates a kind of a, a buildup of tension and release that kind of, I don't know if this is the right term, but like exercises a habitual experience of ourselves. Yeah. And it has a psychological function of not just bonding, but on this level, it's, it's kind of like getting a break from oneself. And it's, it it really, there, there's a whole bunch, it's a whole long story that I could get into in a future thing about like looking at the psychology or the, the psychic, um, aspect of the orgasm and what it does for our sense of self and identity. We need a whole episode on orgasm. You know, my, uh, in college, I took a ecology and evolutionary biology class and my term paper was on the female orgasm. And so I should have known that was prepping me for this podcast, Interesting. but yeah, um, there wasn't a lot around 25 years ago, but you know, there's been a lot more interesting research in the re- recent years. Do you still have that paper? I'd have to look for it. This is back in the age when like I had floppy disks and like a PC, there was no internet, there was no cloud. So probably it would be hard to find, but I would love to look for it. I'd be interested. Uh Uh-huh. Well, and you know, as you're talking about this, it's funny, like I notice inside of my body, like this little like cringy, uncomfortable feeling, like as you're talking about all of this stuff, because I've experienced everything you're talking about. And I hate myself when I'm in the grips of it. Like it's really, um, and so like, I think that that is a way (laughs) when we're getting really honest is that like, when I'm there, it's like, you have, I'm, I feel like both with dominant, I, I don't know, like it's different when I, when I'm in my dominant instinct and I'm doing these things, it just feels like, well, of course you would do this. Doesn't everybody operate this way? When I'm in my blind spot, I'm feeling much more cringy. It's like, yes, yes it's true. And that is me. And it's so annoying when it's manifesting and it's disrupting like my right. other instinctual needs. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I want to get into that in a future thing too. Like that sense <laughs> All of right, cringe well, let's and... do social because I know that we don't have a lot of time here. Yeah. So lastly with social, social is, is the drive to uh, create, maintain connections and relationships. It's just that simple. Anything relational has got the social instinct involved. And so um, the basic drive of the social instinct is the drive for relatedness to be related in some way. It's to be in relationship or to have a close emotional contact. 
um, it can be ongoing. It can be a one-off thing where you just like meet somebody and it just, there's a sense of just pleasure and in connection, but it's like wanting to be related in some sense, not necessarily formalize it in a relational structure, but it's to be, to have some level of connectedness to other person. I think it's pretty straight up. And I think that that's the overarching need for this social instinct. Yeah. Social instinct has its Oh, you want to say? Well, I was just going to say, I also heard, have heard you talk about, you know, this is where belonging lives, you know, really wanting to um, be a part of something greater. And this is where like our context and our vocation is. And so it's like, I really want to participate in something in the larger world. I want to show my gift. I want to improve lives. So like this need for contribution or like shared reality with the rest of the world, I think that it lives in the social instinct. Yeah. I mean, you just named the second and third needs that the social instinct is, is a drive for. It's the need to belong. It's a sense of needing to like belonging, a sense of like mattering to somebody. Like it's not just a sense of, oh, I'm connected. Like you can have that, like a, a small version of that relatedness, like at a coffee shop, right. Of like, you meet the the barista or whatever, and you have like a good thing and it's like, it feels good and whatever. But you, like, there's a need also to like belong to like, like to matter in some way, significant way to somebody. And that can be uh, like literally like, oh, we're friends. And so we matter to each other. That can be like, I'm a part of uh, this independence movement in my country. You know, it's like, it can be abstract in a certain way. Uh, it really depends, but it's like my presence, my being on the world matters. And lastly, yeah, context of vocation is this, is this sense of, I'm reading that there are things happening outside of me as an individual that I, I feel aware of and I want to somehow participate in, belong to, or even contribute to the betterment of. Well, and one of the things I love about your book, and I know we'll get into this in future episodes, but, you know, a social dominant person is very aware of all of these social structures. So the fact that social dominance can actually manifest as a rejection of these structures, totally. I think is super interesting. And I think that that's like, I'm, I'm trying to name these things that I've heard you talk about, or that I've had in my own experience that led to confusion, that as I've been, you know, exploring this more, I'm getting more clarity around because this is really what I want people to start understanding is that it's not that like, oh yeah, I like being in a lot of groups. You know, I thought I was social blind for a while <laughs> right. because I don't like most groups. Right. And yet when it comes to participating and contributing to something, like I'll be the first one to step in and rally everyone around me that I think we need. Like this podcast is a perfect example. And I just want to call out if we're going to talk like cringiness, like it's been fun as we've been developing our relationship over the last eight months to see like my social inaction and in trying to make this like connection and relatedness. And like, you're like slowly stepping into your social with me, like yeah. over time. But yep. it's like, you can totally see that that's blind. Whereas for me, I'm like, wait, isn't this so fun? We're going to all get together and then we're going to transcend. But it's like transcending as a group, not individually, like within my own self. And to me, that feels intoxicating, but it's because I really have this sense that as a collective, we're going to bring these different gifts and we're going to create something amazing and sustainable. And that's so like self-pressed social that like totally leaves the sexual out of it. Well, yeah, and I think what I'm looking, I'm looking forward to a future episode where we like really define like what what is a blind spot because like should we do that next do time or approaches? I don't know. Like it feels like maybe defining the blind spot is more important, and then talk about approaches. What do you think? I'm not, you know, I kind of think maybe approaches then blind spot because they okay. have a lot to do. But I'm not, you know, we'll kind of feel it out. Like I think you could go either way. But okay. um, when you said that, I'm like, yeah, I mean, you have to kind of understand what the blind spot is. And that's the name of the podcast. We should exactly. probably define it. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, all the cringing and all, that, and all the projections and uncomfort and lack of trust and all that stuff. But yeah, those are the, the that, you know, this this is not even like like self-prez type, sexual type, social type. This is just trying to like locate what the instinctual drives are yeah. in a general universal sense yeah. And then what happens when the ego gets involved is like, you know, a whole future, another future. Problem. Right. Because we've been talking about how like self-preservation can look so different if you're, you know, depending on type. Like with my fix of 371, it just looks so different than if you have a different trifix. 
And, you know, and I like part of, you know, I've, I've referenced this discussion I had with somebody last night that was like convinced they're sexual, social and or something like this. And um, they were like, yeah, I can't be social because I'm like, I'm so bad with people. And I don't know this individual's experience, but, uh, you know, you could be a social type and be really aware of how bad at people you are. And like, I have like a vague sense that I'm bad with people. And like, you know, it's again, just another example of the usual ways that we've sort of trained ourselves to approach looking at these things versus opening them up and making them a lot more complicated, but a lot more rewarding in terms of the what it can mean for understanding ourselves. Yeah. Well, and I think we're going to have to talk about the centers and how this plays in too, because I do think it's true that heart-centered people may mistype as sexual or social dominant because there are some things about mm -hmm. the heart center specifically. Mm -hmm. Like as a self-pres heart-centered person, it was harder for me to find my way to my type because there's some stuff there that I'll resonate with and be like, oh, but isn't that sexual? Isn't that social? And not really. It's more heart-centered stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think that this was great. Um, you know, I just love how we just keep on opening up new avenues and there's so much to talk about. Hopefully we'll get to the point where we're interviewing other people, but yeah, I, I think know, that unpacking eventually. all of this is really important because as people listen to the interviews, I think having this content that people can go back and listen to and reference is going to really support them because it really doesn't exist anywhere outside of your book. And as we know, a lot of people don't read anymore, read books anymore. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, John. Well, thanks a lot. This is great. And right. I'll see you next week. All right. Thanks, Kara. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.